Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. We throw around the word unprecedented too freely today. What is truly unprecedented? And what do we do when something that is actually unprecedented happens when we've already used the word so often that it has kind of lost its meaning? I mean, something is unprecedented if literally it has never happened before. And so when something that has never happened before happens... We don't have a word left to describe it because we've already used the word unprecedented so often that people are immune to the reality of just how powerful uh, it is when something that's never happened before actually happens. And so yesterday, when something that has never happened before happened, uh, we use the word unprecedented to describe it and people just gloss over it. So yesterday, when the U.S. House of Representatives voted to vacate the speaker's chairmanship, removing Representative Kevin McCarthy from uh, the position, um, which put him constitutionally third in line to the U.S. presidency, you know, uh, there's people who uh, right now they're just shrugging. You might be shrugging right now, like, you know, so what? But this is actually a moment worthy of more than a shrug. This literally has never happened before in our nation's history. And so the word unprecedented appears today in headlines announcing uh, McCarthy's ouster, um, headlines in Al-, Al Jazeera, which is, you know, read around the world, Reuters, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, People, The Financial Times, Axios, Yahoo News. All of them are using the word unprecedented in their headline. The New York Times doesn't use the word unprecedented in its headline, but does so in the subhead, which reads McCarthy's unprecedented removal hurls the House into a state of havoc as Republicans scramble to determine their next steps. The word havoc there, uh, chosen by the New York Times, is echoed across the media um, where the word chaos is uh, more often chosen. So unprecedented chaos and havoc. These are uh, the words um, and they're not um, they're not in this particular case hyperbole. Sometimes headlines are hyperbole or hyperbolic. They exaggerate things. Um, they're trying to make us fearful. And sometimes they're actually representative of what is happening in real time. So if you are like most people today, the questions that you are probably left with um, range somewhere between so what, like, right, the House of Representatives um, voted to remove the Speaker of the House. Maybe you're saying so what? Um, Or you're saying, well, okay, what next? So the what next might actually be easier to predict than the so what. Um, So here's the what what next. Representative Patrick McHenry He's a Republican from North Carolina. 
um, kind of a right-hand man to Kevin McCarthy. He has been named the Speaker Pro Tem. So that means he's like the interim speaker, but he can only do one thing. He can only do one thing as the uh, Speaker Pro Tem. All he can do is oversee the election of a new speaker. That's it. Um, And so the House will move to select a new speaker, um, and they're going to, you know, they're meeting to chart that course. Um, But House Democrats already have a candidate. And you're saying to yourself, but I thought the Republicans were in the majority. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, eight Republicans sided with every Democratic member of the House to oust McCarthy. And so the Democrats in the House actually have a plan to nominate uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who is a Democrat from New York and the minority leader. They're going to nominate him to be the Speaker of the House. McCarthy has said he's not going to run for the position again, and the Republicans don't have a plan uh, as to who they're going to put up. And until um, a speaker is elected, until someone can win 218 votes, the House is going to continue to hold elections in what will be an ongoing speaker's race. They can literally do no other work. Let me just say it again. They can do no other work until they elect someone to fill the vacated seat. They cannot pass the 11 appropriations bills that are needed to fund the U.S. government beyond the November 17th expiration of the current continuing resolution that was passed just before the midnight deadline on Saturday. And it was that action which resulted in the move to remove Kevin McCarthy from the speakership. So had he not done what he did to orchestrate uh, a deal that a majority of House members could vote for, the U.S. government would currently be shut down and we would be talking about the so what and what next of that. What they passed was only a stopgap measure. It's called a continuing resolution. It's actually the way that Congress has been functioning for a number of years now, having not passed a budget, which is their job to do. Continuing resolutions are not a budget. They are a stopgap measure. And this particular one did not include further funding for the support of Ukraine to defend itself against Russian invasion. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot at risk. There's a lot in play. You are most certainly um, going to be privy to some kind of conversation about this. And so what are we as Christians going to say about all these things? Well, first, God is a God of order, not chaos. God is a God of order, not chaos. That would be one Um, thing that we could bring into the conversation. Um, We can be praying without ceasing. We can apply the mind of Christ as we have conversations about these things. And we can can do that, which Paul commends to us in Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, our friend Bill English is back from BibleandBusiness.com. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Carmen. I felt like um, maybe returning, circling back around, starting over again, having a conversation about Christian ethics might be good soil to um, to retill because there are some who are behaving badly, not only in uh, public, but in private. And so could we just talk a little bit about Christian ethics? 
Yes, we can. You have an excellent piece posted at BibleAndBusiness.com on this topic, um, you know, and it, it addresses the starting point for Christian ethics. So maybe you could walk us around in there, beginning with, like, what's actually the foundation for uh, a Christian ethical framework? Yeah, you know, um, this is part of a writing project that I'm on. Surprise, surprise, I'm on another writing project. And um, I was trying to dis- discern where Christian ethics should actually start. What's the starting point for it? Uh, some people start with this idea that, uh, you know, that God is holy or God is just or God is loving. Others start with God's grace. Um, uh, Stapleford, one of the guys I looked at, starts with uh, Christian theology and the nature of God. And even Wayne Grudem, who wrote that huge book on Christian ethics, he starts really with um, with the ten, with the Ten Commandments. And I I was just doing a lot of reading on that, and I was thinking about starting where Wayne did at the Ten Commandments, and then I and then some research I was looking at it, and it kind of dawned on me. What are the two commands that all of the other commands hang on, right? (laughs) (laughs) Loving God Mm -hmm. and loving your fellow man. And the part that I liked about uh, making those two commands the starting point for Christian that those are the two commands on which everything else hangs, right? And so I wasn't just pulling out something about God out of thin air. I just wasn't going to the Ten Commandments because they're there. I found a place where Christ actually said, here's, he didn't say it in these words. And I, I understand I'm, this is a little bit more Bill than Bible, but Christ was saying to me at that moment, Bill, this is a good starting point for ethics, loving God and loving your fellow man. When you're faced with an ethical decision, filter that through this notion of, is this loving towards another person the same way that I would want to be loved? And is this loving God the way that he deserves and the way that, that he deserves to be worshipped? And so that was that was where I, I landed on a starting point. I like the word filter. Um, I, like, uh, I like the idea that um, as we talk about and construct and evaluate our own ethics, our own ethical decision-making and our own ethical behavior— that we would recognize we are filtering all of that through something. Like we are using a filter of some kind. We are using a lens of some kind. Um, And so this idea that we would use the filter of Christ's answer to the question, you know, what's the first and greatest commandment? uh, And his answer is, you know, to love the Lord our God with all we have, all we are, and all we do. Um, And then he says, you know, the second command is also like it love your neighbor as yourself, which leads us to a conversation about who is your neighbor and gets us into a conversation about showing mercy and all of those things. So um, ethics are what, and then what, uh, you know, like, how do I go about filtering a decision I need to make um, or something that's happening? How do I press something through a particular filter? Do you see the two questions I'm asking? What, What are ethics? Like what or what, like, and then, and then, how does a person filter something through, um, let's say, the um, the sieve of the first and second commandments? Yeah, so let me, let me deal with the first one. I, I look at ethics as a contrast to theology. If theology mm-hmm. tells me what I should believe and what I should think, right, 
then ethics tells me what I should do and the attitudes with which I should take those actions in those situations where the Bible doesn't clearly articulate a command. So if 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 you were to say to me, is it ethical to rob a bank? I'd say, of course it's unethical, but it's more. It's it's a sin because stealing is a sin, right? Mm. But if you were to say to me, um, Bill, as as a business owner, you're going to have to terminate somebody today. Is that an ethical decision? Well, the Bible doesn't address me terminating an employee necessarily, but I can filter that decision through my starting points. Is is this honoring God? Is it loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And is this loving this employee as I would want to be loved? And and so that's that's kind of how I look at that. So I, I I define ethics in contrast to theology, if that's helpful. Yeah, or as a compliment, or as an outgrowth of theology. I sure, like the way yeah. I like the yeah. way you you frame that. Right, theology, you know, is telling me uh, what and how to think about God, and I'm deriving that through what Scripture reveals, right, through the revelation of His Word. Correct. Um, but the Bible doesn't address every ethical question that I might have, and yet. The theology of the Bible um, implies an ethic, and it implies what I would do in light of what I know about God's character and will. So that is really that is a really really helpful way um, of thinking and talking about that. Um, all right, now um, that's the starting point, and then we're going to work that out over time. I like the way you wove the golden rule into um, in into your description of how a person goes about making an ethical decision. Uh, you know, about a given thing on a given day. That that was nice. Could you remind us uh, what the golden rule is as a supplement here to the first and oh, second geez. commandments? Jeez, the golden rule. I'm looking. <laughs> no, no, you, you said it. You said it instinctively, and it's to treat other people as we would, yeah, know, as we would want to be treated. Like, yeah, do unto others. Well, I'm just saying, like, you said it, you know, as an outgrowth of, of what, of how you go about making a decision. Like, do unto others as you would have them um, yeah. do unto me, like, right. That, right. Be- that is really good. Yeah, it is. Because if I w- it, would, I want, is this how I would want to be treated? And that's how we treat other people. And I know, I know after the break, we're going to get into a, a particular situation that I've outlined in another post on my website, <laughs> but there are times when, um, even though it hurts, you know, like, uh, I'm going back to Proverbs here, the wounds of a friend are a good thing. That's the Bill English paraphrase. And even if a friend is wounding me, well, is that how I would want to be treated? If I'm wounding somebody else in love, is that how I would want to be treated? There, there are some really interesting things here that crop up when you use these two commands as the starting point for ethics. Next, uh, Bill is going to tell us what boorish behavior is and how we uh, can tolerate it. So uh, are you boorish? I mean, you might be boring, but are you boorish? We're going to find out next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. Hey, if you enjoy what you're listening to here, would you consider subscribing to other great faith radio podcasts like mine? Search Susie Larson Live at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Burrish. Maybe it's not boorish. Maybe it's burrish. Tolerating burrish behavior. 
Our friend Bill English is here from BibleandBusiness.com. We're talking about Christian ethics. We're talking about the way Christians are because of who we are and what we're in the world to do, um, reveal Christ to others, how it is that we then behave. That's the ethics part here. And so, um, Bill, uh, what if there is someone at work who is burrish? Um, first of all, what does that mean? And um, and should it be tolerated? And if so, how do we go about tolerating that? Uh, boorish, uh, the way I look at it is uncouth or um, really damaging, injurious, emotionally and mentally injurious behavior to uh, other people. So when a person is being boorish, they are being um, they're being egocentric, they're being arrogant, they're being callous, they're being insensitive, they're being rude. They will discount the opinions of other people. Um, and amazingly enough, Carmen, uh, some of these people who have these characteristics are also highly talented and uh, very creative people. And one of the ethical uh, uh, situations that I that I just have been posting on, so this series on ethics at Bible and Business, there's only going to be about five or six, maybe seven posts on it, and then I'll be done with it. But um, one of the situations I'm looking at is when uh, boards of businesses or elder boards of churches put up with boorish behavior in either a senior pastor or a key employee because of the um, great uh, benefit that that person brings to the organization. So, for example, an elder board might look the other way when a pastor is very boorish behind closed doors. Uh, but is a is a highly gifted, highly talented uh, communicator in the pulpit, and is able to garner you know a lot of people uh, to a Sunday morning service because of of what that pastor uh, can do uh, in the pulpit. Uh, for a boardroom, they'll they'll put up with a CEO or a top salesman or something like that because because of the great results that they are bringing. Uh, a person who dealt with this, Carmen, is a guy named Paul Babiak, uh, and I referenced this in my article. He wrote a book in 2006, not a Christian book, but a seminal work in business. It's called Snakes in Suits, and if you haven't read it, I do recommend the book uh, to the Faith Radio audience, especially if you are middle or upper-level management in a for-profit business. So... Uh, the the ethical dilemma comes in when we're keeping a key employee on staff when the owner knows the destruction that lies in the wake of that employee uh, and yet retains the employee because of the benefits that are Do we lose Bill or did you lose me? No, no, I'm here. I'm here. I just, I wanted to give you a chance to chime in. I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. No, no, that's good. Um, So snakes in suits. Um. When Psychopaths Go to Work is the subtitle of the Paul Babiak book. Um, uh, this is immediately going to resonate with people who have ex- had an experience in a church where a very, very talented and gifted, productive, quote, successful pastor um, has been a horrible person behind closed doors um, or is known to have been not only egocentric and insensitive and rude and discounting of others and derogatory, um, but abusive. I mean, like, and so I do think that when we talk about tolerating this kind of behavior, um, 
we are increasingly living in a time when people are more and more willing to say this is what's happening behind closed doors and it's not okay. And there is a, you know, and there's an inconsistency here between what this person is proclaiming in public and holding themselves out to be and what is actually happening in private. And so when we talk about Christian ethics and we talk about boorish behavior, obviously, um, you know, there's a, there's a different spirit operating in the life of a person, and it's evidenced in their behavior. It's evidenced in their words um, when what they do in in private behind closed doors is different from what they do in public um, uh, and in front of others. And so um, there should be an integrity for the Christian between the public and the private self. Can you can you touch on that? I mean, I know that this this tolerating boorish behavior in a for-profit company may be made for different reasons. But when we're talking about Christians, this just ought not be who we are. Yeah. And, and this is where, um, a lot of these boorish people, uh, and I'll call them guys, mostly guys in the pulpit. Um, they are also powerful and can be very intimidating people. And they tend to build elder boards over time that are rather weak and kind of rubber stampish, if I can put it that way. Um, look, Borsch behavior, um, to go back to our two commands, is hardly loving your neighbor as yourself. Um, and it also, I think, betrays a lack of love for God. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's like saying, I'm going to do things my way, and I get to treat people the way I want to, and I'm not going to treat them the way God would have me treat them. And so um, it's difficult, I think, to reason ourselves into a place where insensitivity or arrogance or callousness are examples of loving one's neighbor. I, I, I just don't see how we get there. Um, and often the offending pastor uh, is usually simultaneously doing some really good things to grow the church. And so elder boards are going to tend to make the trade-off decision that will live with the damage in the wake of this guy in exchange for the success on Sunday mornings and the success in, in tithing. And, um, I would just say to elder boards that that's not the right decision, that that is the wrong decision uh, to make. The right decision is to um, let go of the premise uh, that only the offending pastor can bring in the results that are there, and instead just trust the Lord for attendance and tithing and things like that. But have somebody in the pulpit who is uh, consistent both publicly and privately. I want to be looking for um, looking for leaders and elevating leaders who are like Jesus, um, and Jesus would never be described as boorish. Um, no. I don't think Jesus would uh, would be described as one who tolerated boorish behavior um, among his disciples. I think he would have quickly called them out. So, um, ask yourself as you're evaluating this question: How did Jesus treat people in public and in private? Um, how how did how did Jesus's public proclamations line up with his private behavior? Um, How might the Holy Spirit need to bring you and I into greater conformity with Christ in this particular measure? It's not about how the world measures things. Um, It's not about how the world um, measures success or influence. It's about the measure of the man in terms of God's plumb line. So how is God measuring us in terms of our thought life, our speech, our behavior, our treatment of others. And if you need a test here, something to test this against, um, you know, we're going to use the first and second 
commandments, the first commandment of loving God, the second commandment, like it, uh, loving neighbor. And then you're going to ask yourself, well, what is this love that Christ expects of us? Maybe use 1 Corinthians 13 as a way of testing um, the way you love. And that would be love that's patient and kind. A love that does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, but builds others up. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's a love that does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It is a love that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and never fails. So when you think about um, all of the places in which you encounter and serve alongside other people, let us have this kind of love um, that the world might know we are Christians and, um, and be interested in the Christ whom alone we worship and serve. So um, we want to thank Bill English for being with us for this conversation today. I want to reflect back for just a moment here on the conversations we had yesterday about the great de-churching, right? 40 million people who have left the church in the past 25 years in the United States of America. Um, the fact that those who are de-churched are now raising a generation who will be unchurched and the particular challenges that that presents for those of us um, who are in the church and who are interested in others being in the church, interested in the body of Christ and its um, joyful flourishing, its, its representation in the culture, its witness, its redeeming power. We also yesterday heard stories of great hope. Uh, we heard stories about people turning to Christ, people being redeemed, mass baptisms, people living vibrant lives of faith in the midst of some of what we might see as the most hostile of environs. So which is it? Like, which is it? Is Christianity on the ascent or on the descent? Is faith a rising tide or some waning phase of Western history? Justin uh, Brierly talks to atheists a lot. He spends a lot of his time talking to atheists. And after talking with atheists for like something like 15 years, he actually believes there's a rising tide. People are returning to Christianity. I think the question is, is the church, are you and I prepared to welcome this new wave of faith? Justin Brierly joins us next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, this is going to be fun. Uh, Justin Brierly is here. Uh, he is a broadcaster, a public apologist in the United Kingdom. He is author, among other things, of the book we're going to discuss today, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. Justin, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you. All right, I'm enjoying your YouTube channel, um, Thinking Faith. So thank you for um, thank you for that development in terms of what you're doing. Oh, you're you're welcome. It's it's been an exciting time. I've I've been in a big transition recently, so developing some new projects, working on some new podcasts and videos. It's 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 all good fun. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. So thank you. Um, all right, so let's jump in. The surprising rebirth of belief in God, Justin. I got to tell you, you know, mostly we hear 
uh, the hand wringing and um, the conversations about all the people leaving the church. Um, you know, it's just, it's waning. You know, Christianity's waning in the Western world. Uh, that is that is not what you are seeing. I mean, you're seeing that, but you're also seeing these glimmers of hope, and you're seeing a rising tide. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right that when you look at the statistics, what the surveys tell us, we we know that church going is on the decline, certainly here in the UK and arguably in the USA as well. Uh, and also just the rise of people who describe themselves as having no religious affiliation. But that isn't the full story, because actually what I've noticed is several interesting trends going on, if you like, further upstream. One of them is the fact that I think the new atheism, this very dogmatic anti-God movement that started in the mid-2000s has actually waned significantly. And, and generally, people weren't really converted to that kind of very dogmatic form of non-belief. But equally, I've seen as people continue to have questions in the culture, um, actually, there's there's a lot of interest in spirituality uh, and even religious answers, uh, particularly being sort of presented by some interesting secular intellectuals. So these are people who aren't necessarily Christian themselves, but who do recognize that Christianity has given us a really firm foundation for beliefs in things like human rights, democracy, equality, and so on. And those who suggest that actually the meaning crisis we're experiencing in our culture can't really be answered by anything other than something like the Christian faith. And and increasingly, as I was meeting some of these folk in conversation on my radio show and podcast, I started to realize that there's a new conversation developing on God and the religious thing hasn't really gone away. It's just been channeled in different directions. And, and there is room, I think, for the Christian story to come back in again. When you talk about um, what I would describe as evidence of common grace, like people who they're telling the Christian story, they're pointing to the positive um, attributes of of Christianity um, and certainly the impact and effect it has not only on people but on cultures. They're pointing to those things, but they're doing so um, really with, without talking about Jesus. Um, and so sometimes we hear that, we read that, we have immediate resonance with it, and we're just like, that that's right. Like, that person's right, but that person's not a Christian. <laughs> and mm. sometimes then we don't know what to do. Like, right, as Christians, we're like, well, I don't know, that's a non-Christian saying things that are nice and right. Can I? Am I allowed to point to that? Like, am I allowed to point to Jonathan Haidt when he's right about something, even if he's not, you know, leading uh, the conversation mm-hmm. with an evangelical faith, or um, I think of a podcast that I like uh, to listen to um, that's clearly not hosted by a person who's Christian. But half the time, the stuff they're talking about, I'm like, that's so Christian. I mean, I don't, they don't know it, but that's so Christian. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Like being willing to point to those places and spaces and bring them forward into the cultural conversation, because those people do have audiences that I, as a Christian broadcaster, don't naturally have. Well, as St. Augustine said, all truth is God's truth. So if I hear truth being spoken by someone who is who is not a Christian, that that's okay because there is this common grace, as you say. And and ultimately, if it's true, then it's God's truth. So for me, I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself like you do that are not necessarily coming from Christians, but there are still people speaking common sense, speaking truth there. And so I've been interested to see in a sense that a lot of people are from outside of the church pointing back to the Christian story. Um, one particular person that I focus on somewhat in the book is 
Jordan, Jordan Peterson. He's a mm-hmm. Canadian psychology professor who's obviously been a big character in the culture wars recently. He's, you know, really come out against certain aspects of US and Canadian culture around transgender and so on. But but what's interesting is that when you actually see him in conversation on his podcast or on public stages oh, or and so in on, the biblical in that biblical series that he did with yeah. all those Christians sitting around a table Absolutely. talking about Genesis and talking about Exodus. I know I'm like. Now, wait a minute, right? It's good. It's good. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, And so so he's actually been quite explicitly engaging with the Christian faith, actually, even though he still seems somewhat tentative as to where exactly he stands in terms of personal faith. But but wherever he's at, he's I think he, by pointing people back towards the Christian story and saying repeatedly in these lectures and on these podcasts that we can't really live without making sense of life through something like the Christian story. I think he's kind of opening a door to for people to walk through um, in a way that the, the, the new atheists never did. So I think the people who used to turn up for these intellectuals like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, they're no longer looking to those sort of very dogmatic atheist types. They're coming to the Jordan Petersons and others. I, I mean, I'm going to be going to, you know, one of his events in London next month with my... 18 year old son, he's going to fill out a 50,000 seater arena in London, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Mm-hmm. There, there are people turning up to hear this person basically direct them back to the Bible, interestingly. So for me, I think this is a really interesting development. And it just suggests that the conversation around God really has changed quite a bit when it comes to what people are willing to to give credit for, if you like, in, in the public space. So it's 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 thrilling. I think you're exactly right. I completely agree. We are also horribly ill-equipped as evangelical Christians um, for the kinds of conversations we need to be having. Because in the apologetics world, we have been prepared and preparing ourselves to have arguments with the quote-unquote new atheists instead of the people who actually exist in the culture who are actually interested, they just don't know. It's a, there's a, a knowledge gap, and there's this mm. distance um, between all the things that, you know, we might know because we've been immersed in a Christian subculture for so long, we don't even speak the same language. So can you talk with us a little bit about some of the things we might need to unlearn in terms of our yeah. uh, approach to, to what I would call apologetics trained up, you know, to like bring the argument. And that's, this is mm, not a crowd mm. really looking for an argument. (laughs) Well, I I would say there's still a value, obviously, to addressing those objections that were there from the new atheists. And and actually, I think in a way, the the new atheist movement kind of gave a real shot in the arm to Christian apologetics by presenting it with some, you know, big objections and and, and kind of forcing the church to, to, you know, get on its game. But but ultimately, yes, the questions I think have moved on from, you know, these sort of basically these objections to God around science, faith, philosophy and so on from people like Richard Dawkins, because actually the average person who's a non-Christian today isn't necessarily asking, you know, does God exist? They're probably asking a question like, how do I get meaning or purpose in life? Because, you know, I, I, I'm feeling listless and unenergized and and depressed or anxious. And that's that's where we're at. I think what these new thinkers are identifying is that we have a meaning crisis. Is actually it's actually one that's been kind of created in part by the new atheists, ironically, because by tearing down God uh, and tearing down the Christian story as an explanation of reality, they didn't then 
create a sort of scientific rationalist utopia. They actually cleared the ground for all kinds of quasi-religious stories to, to enter in its place. And so you get people basically grabbing onto other things, whether it be, you know, progressive left ideologies about sexuality and gender that kind of ultimately define them and they kind of treat us in place of god or or you know on on the right wing you know you can get kind of nationalistic identities that do the same job for people the point is people still are going to be looking for a story to live their life by and and what i think we have effectively is are these culture wars where people don't know what story to live in and i think that's why these public intellectuals are pointing people back to the Christian story because that story worked. We know that it worked for many, many generations for many people. And I think that's why there's this this opportune moment, I think, for the church to speak into that meaning crisis and say, look, we do have a story that makes sense of your anxiety, your depression, your sense that you don't have a, a meaning to life. You, you, you can't find the identity you're looking for. So those, I think, are the kinds of questions that the church needs to be tapping into right now. So when's the last time uh, you were just willing to stand on the beach with somebody and allow creation to speak? When's the last time you, you sat and listened to a symphony with somebody and allowed the reality of the beauty of music to touch them in places that the material world says don't even exist? Those are the meaning-making moments that open doorways now into conversations um, we're going to continue um, our chat with Justin Brierley. He's the author of The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. When we come back, um, we're going to continue talking about this meaning crisis because it really is the doorway uh, into opportunity in terms of conversations with people who maybe um, maybe they don't expressly reject God on the basis of some of those new atheist arguments that we've all learned, Dawkins and others, um, but they're apathetic uh, toward God. It's not that they actively disbelieve. They just don't actively believe. And so what could be um, a step we could take in the direction of people like that? And then what does the journey look like out of disbelief today? That's what that's what's coming uh, in our ongoing conversation with Justin Brierley. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. All right. Uh, you know that people around us, um, people in our own homes, have grown weary of trying to make real life out of material things, and they have turned increasingly to relationships that are um, not real. Um, AI dating would be one example um, of a growing trend of people being seeking to satisfy real needs with um, things that are artificial. So what does it look like to make meaning? What is the real life that Jesus uh, lived and died and rose again to give us? How are we agents of that in a world where people are so alienated um, not only from God, but from one another and from real meaning in life itself. We're talking with Justin Brierley. All of those subjects are addressed in The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, which is Justin's new book. 
Justin, let's talk about um, the power of story. Let's talk about the mm. way the way back um, or the way forward maybe is a better way to say it. Um, because I think, uh, you know, when we're talking about landing the plane, right, when we're talking about how do I engage with a person who um, maybe because of their university studies and their immersion in scientism, you know, they have rejected God. But then they stand on the edge of uh, of a beach and they watch the sunrise or the sunset and they have the experience of awe and they cannot explain it. And suddenly the door is opened. Um, can you just talk about how we walk through that door and how we reintroduce the old, old story? Mm, I, well, I think so often the journey back to faith for many people is one where there's a kind of nagging suspicion that actually the universe is stranger than they thought, that it's not just matter in motion, that 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 actually there's something behind this whole show. And, and it often starts in those moments of transcendence, you know, and that's a common thing that you experience across all times, places and cultures. So I think firstly, you just want to point that out to someone who's who's experiencing that and, and point out that, yeah. You, you can't simply make sense of your experience of beauty and love and joy and your sense of justice and equality on the basis that it's all just really electrons in your brain kind of creating, you know, firings that that give you these sense sensations that that isn't a good enough explanation for most people. So I think you can simply start there and say, look, perhaps there's a bigger picture here that you need to be looking for. And ultimately, I think you, you, you do start with people's, you know, what does really engage people um you know they may not be that interested in the god question they may think that's rather too abstract but actually it may be that they have a real love for their family it may be that they're really engaged in some kind of issue of justice you know um seeking to mend poverty or something like that and i think you can start there and say well where does that sense come from where does that drive originate um because if we are simply just you know creatures you know warring for survival in essentially uh, an unguided process of evolution then it's very hard to make sense of of where that comes from ultimately where where that stems from and increasingly you know i think we have great resources at our fingertips to point people towards again some of these secular intellectuals who are who are pointing out that really it's the christian story that gave us these instincts in fact um here in the uk there's a, a, a popular historian called tom holland not not the spider-man actor uh, in the <laughs> marvel series but actually uh a very well-known podcaster, author of a book called Dominion, all about the way that the Christian revolution really has shaped the West. And again, as someone who doesn't particularly profess a Christian faith himself, he's been reminding hundreds of thousands of his listeners and his secular peers that actually Christianity is really what made us believe in this essentially theological idea of human rights, of human justice, of equality, of dignity, and so on. He says you won't get that from an atheistic perspective, and you certainly don't get it from the Greeks and the Romans. It specifically started with this person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So I think there's lots of ways into that conversation to show that actually the things we value most really don't come from some kind of scientistic or atheist background. They actually come from the Christian faith. And that that perhaps might just be enough to start that conversation off on the right foot with someone who who might be open to to exploring these things. You've made me think as well about um, Oz Guinness and his book, Signals of Transcendence, um, listening to the promptings of life. Like there are these uh, moments of transcendence that are an open door um, where people acknowledge or begin asking for the first time, maybe like legitimate questions about, yeah, what's what what or who is behind it all i mean generally they start with what's behind it all and then 
That leads mm. us to the who is behind it all. And that leads us to a conversation about the universe being personal, which is the hope. Like, right? People mm. don't really know that that's the desperate hope they have. They're they're hoping that it's personal. Um, yeah. And and then, yeah, when then we have Jesus and it, he makes it all yeah. personal. It, absolutely. And you, you mentioned story earlier. I, I, I think, you know, we are story driven creatures in so many ways. There's there's a, a psychologist, Jonathan Gottschall, who wrote a whole book on this, that if we believe we're simply bouncing around chaotically in our life without any kind of narrative or purpose there, then that leads to depression and anxiety and, and so on. But actually, people need a story. That's why they're reaching out in our culture for these other stories, these quasi-religious stories, if you like, to, to make sense of their life. But they're not satisfying them. There, there's still this, you know, as Blaise Pascal put it, a God-shaped hole in people's lives, and they're still trying to fill it with other things. But So I think we actually need to present the Christian story to people and, and say, look, you need a story to live by. Well, this is the story that has made sense to, you know, hundreds, you know, to millions of people down many generations and actually it's a story that makes sense not only apologetically if you like historically philosophically but it also makes sense of you emotionally and i think that's where sometimes we forget to to kind of put the emphasis as well because it's not just about showing people that it's true it's about mm. helping them realize they want it to be true as well that it, it mm. would make sense of of who they are at an emotional level and and that's where i found it really useful to turn to people like um there's there's a wonderful writer here again here in the uk called francis spufford who wrote a, a wonderful response to the new atheists called unapologetic the subtitle of which was why despite everything christianity can still make surprising emotional sense and and i think that's right it's about helping people to see that there's a there's a different story that you can effectively step into and that that does just meet those those things and and again some of the best apologists have actually been people who have done that thing of not only showing through apologetic arguments that it's true so c.s lewis wrote some wonderful apologetics books responding to you know the problem of pain and showing why christianity is true but he also made people want it to be true by writing the narnia stories he he created this world that people just fell in love with and were entranced by and you know who who hasn't at some point knocked on the back of a wardrobe just in case there's a magical land of fawns and you know this this talking lion aslan but the point of doing that was to say well look what if this is true? What if there is such a thing in your world and he has a different name, Jesus? So I think that's our job to, to do that thing of showing people why they'd want it to be true before we then go on to show them that, in fact, it is true. Yeah, that longing, that that hope, that um, that's so good. That's just so good. Um, thank you, Justin. Thank you so much. Uh, you guys can visit with Justin online and check out all of his resources, including this latest book at justinbriarly.com. If you want the direct links, you know, just to text me, 877-933-2484. I'll send you the direct links. The book is The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. So do you love to tell the story? Which story? Whose story? Do you love to tell the story? I'm wondering, could you tell the story of the Bible today with this framework? Could you could you tell the Bible story, the story of of God and history? Could you tell it as once upon a time, all the way to and everyone lived happily ever after? Could you do that? Um, might that be a provocative exercise? And then you could ask, what if it's true? <laughs> once upon a time, 
and then, and then, and then, until, and then, everyone lived happily ever after? What if it's true? That's the, um, that's the pivot from loving to tell the story to leading a person um, to the reality of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And what a privilege, what a privilege it is um, to be with you on that particular journey of faith. Uh, you've been listening to Mornings with Carmen. we got lots of great resources uh, posted for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.